Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the wonderful and weird parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Drew. Say hi. Hello. Hello. Uh, And Aaron, say hi. Hello, cupboard dwellers. (laughs) This episode, um, we've got our fourth guest ever, so we're, we're we're getting through the guests Finally, um, Phil Barber from Shep Breath, who'll be coming on later to talk to us all things uh, invertebrate, which would be fun to catch up with him about. But apart from that, we will hop into the news. It's the news! Right, well, now we are into the news, and this week, well, Aaron's going to start us off with uh, his news article before I go into a rant again, because I don't get to do the nice, fluffy news. Uh, It's another serious one from me this week, so uh, Aaron, start us off. Oh, we're all going to rant, don't worry. (laughs) I'm afraid this isn't good news over. Oh dear, we've gone from very much a good news to very much back to normal of bad news. I'm sure that our interview with Phil is going to be awesome and fun. So. Good, good. Left of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, this is the news that Sri Lanka is bracing itself for the fallout of a sunken cargo ship's toxic payload. And it okay. comes to us from Monga Bay, quite a good uh, kind of environmental news source online. So, basically, right now, along the shoreline north of Colombo in Sri Lanka, uh, or Sri Lanka's commercial capital, sorry. Uh, their beaches are littered with millions of tiny white pearls about the size of a peppercorn. Um, no, they're not proper pearls. They are polyethylene. They're completely covering the beaches. There's those and the photos are not nice. Are they um, uh, beanbag chair beads, basically, by the sounds of it? Isn't that usually polystyrene beanbags? Yeah, I suppose, yeah. They're also in the water, so the luck never ends. Um, And there's been a lot of stories and reports from locals that are saying that they've laid nets in their traditional fishing grounds and returned a few days later. And all they've found is synthetic fibres, no no fish, rendered the nets completely unusable. Basically, that means that on on the seabed, the bottom of the fishing grounds, uh, there's materials from the ship that is burning, basically. So environmental experts and officials are basically preparing for the worst because uh, the partly sunken MV Express Pearl cargo ship threatens uh, the area with a massive oil and chemical leak in addition to all these uh, millions of plastic beads. The beads are also known as nurdles, and so far the most prominent sign of this disaster. They've washed up all along the island's west coast uh, and around Colombo. Um, and like I say, it's, it's all underwater to the ship's cargo of nitric acid and its bunker f- fuel uh, poses a threat to widespread pollution and changes to the seawater's chemistry, which of course is going to affect marine ecosystems, which are sensitive enough as it is. And over the long term, the accumulation of these microplastics, as well as the diluted chemicals, is 
it's just going to affect the ecosystem for years and years to come. So uh, decades even, as the uh, article expresses. So the ship itself, the burning ship, as they've dubbed it, is uh, is a newly built Singapore flagged freighter. It caught fire in late May and partially sank off of Colombo in early June. A, a large portion of the uh, cargo has fallen overboard during this fire and sinking. Has it been burning this entire time? Uh, it doesn't. Yeah, well, it says that it's, it, it refers to it as a burning ship. So presumably that that sounds like it's still on fire. Wow. So, yeah. It, so that acid that I was talking about, nit- nitric acid, that's 25 metric tons of it. Uh, and the fuel, the bunker fuel, that makes up 378 metric tons. Um, so it's huge. It's not just these, these little plastic pellets. They're not just on the shoreline and in the sea. They're caught up in the mangroves. There's debris uh, everywhere. It's causing all kinds of problems. Um, a senior lecturer at the University of Ru- Ruhuna uh, mentions that this mess basically can cause entanglement, infections, injury, uh, and higher mortality rates in marine life, of course. Seabirds might ingest the plastic pellets or debris, which can negatively affect their health and even kill them. But they're, like I say, I think the, they're pretty much concerned about these plastics. However, the the risk of the potential leaks of these chemicals is what they're really, really panicking about uh, because it, it's just... It's already being described as one of the area's worst environmental disasters. So if this starts to leak, <laughs> I don't know what they're going to be able to do, to be honest. There is a photo of, of um, ships trying to hose the uh, the freighter down. And it's I don't know if they've uh, gotten control of it, to be honest. But uh, yeah, that's the article, basically. Um, it kind of finishes up on, on saying that they, they're kind of already trying to arrange a cleanup but they're saying we don't know how many months it would take to remove all the all the plastic and it has to be done by specialized divers and it's just that it's such an incredibly difficult task so yeah that's my article there is some really worrying photos on this uh, like i said so you've got the burning boat being hosed down by uh, by two other boats you've got a photo of the pearls the little white plastic beads um, on the shoreline on the sand. There's also a picture of um, a very dead, but also uh, very much looks like it would has suffered from this uh, turtle. It was it's basically washed ashore in southwest Sri Lanka in the direct aftermath of this sunken ship. So it's uh, yeah, not a good time over there right now. On a completely somewhat related note, actually, if I'm correct, that's where one of the hotspots for blue whale feeding is off the coast of Sri Lanka and India in the uh, like in the deep water off the Bay of Bengal. I've been to Colombo and I do know that they have in the south of the island, there's a, a turtle rescue and rehab place. Odd there. That's, pretty overrun. that's pretty good. So that's going to be overrun. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got that fantastic island uh, that's off the coast of Sri Lanka somewhere. You know, the one with the... Uh, oh, the Sentinel Island. One. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, uh, they're going to be angry, and rightfully so. Try and clean that up. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds like the exact opposite of what we had last week, which was, you know, we had some good news on an international scale, 
And now I get to uh, to bring the exact opposite of the good news on a uh, on, on a local scale because we're now going into bad news on a local scale for the UK, which is uh, is very much to do with um, my article this week, which is not actually come from a newspaper or an internet forum or anything like that. Mine's come from the Amphibian and Reptile Group of the UK, otherwise known as ARG, which is very much a sound that I think all three of us are making at the moment of. Erg. <laughs> Essentially, there is very worrying and concerning news that has come from the Joint Nature Conservancy Committee, more commonly known as the JNCC, this public body that advises the UK government and developed administration for the UK-wide and international nature conservation. Every five years, they review the legislation protecting our native wildlife. This Quinquennial review, which I've got to admit, quinquennial that is a great word. Is a, such a good word. Is a word I have never heard before, but I it's am. It's word of the week. I'm loving it's it. A, oh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful word. It's about the only good thing from this article, actually. Yeah, is a fun word. This quinquennial review, uh, we have learned that the current round seeks to remove all of the widespread species of amphibian and reptile from Schedule Five and Eight of the Wildlife and Countryside Act through changing the eligibility criteria for these schedules so that only critically endangered species are considered. Now, essentially, the, uh, the article then goes on to, uh, to say specifically there would be no longer a requirement to consider any of the widespread species except the great crested newt under planning protocols. It would remove protection for killing or injuring uh, of our only native venomous snake, the adder, which we have talked about at length before and how it does need protection. So it would no longer be a wildlife crime to persecute or kill them uh, and could even be the final blow for the animal already on the brink. It would become legal to trade in wild-caught British widespread amphibians and reptiles, which poses a huge biosecurity risk, uh, since this would uh, result in wild animals being moved around and removed from their habitat. Um, we've already identified a significant threat to our native newts, which uh, BSAL, uh, which is a... Uh, uh, an infectious disease that's affecting our newts uh, could also enter into wild populations in the UK. It's already present in captive collections and a disease that has led to a 99% mortality in fire salamanders in the Netherlands and Belgium. Basically, from what this is saying, this could be the end of Britain's amphibians and reptile populations. Uh-huh. And from looking through all of the different bits of information, it would appear that the main reason that this is happening is so that the government can uh, basically plough through with HS2 because it then makes areas of countryside a lot easier to clear because building sites no longer have to do anywhere near the amount of conservation checks that they would have to currently. It also means that landowners can develop the land and turn it into housing a lot easier and a lot quicker. Essentially, what it boils down to is money and the government doing what they do best doing what the Tories do best, which is, well, making themselves rich, making their friends rich, and making the entire country poorer in the process. This is possibly the worst thing that could happen for our our reptiles and amphibians ever. And I think mostly because I'm very much a reptile and amphibian fanatic in, in, in the sense that they get a raw deal all the time compared to a lot of bigger, more charismatic animals. If this was any other big charismatic mammal people would actually be up in arms over this and they would mm-hmm. never be able to get away with it near as easily. But the moment you say it's a snake, people tend to eh, 
I'm not so bothered. They'll also quite happily persecute them as well. And um, can can I just interject a second? Yeah, um, yeah. because in any other case, I would a hundred percent agree with you. If it was a mammal, there would be people jumping up and down and raging about it. But maybe it's because I'm really quite angry at the moment about a number of things, not just this. Sorry to rant uh, and, and stuff, it's but rant. it's fine. It's not true of British mammals. I'm sorry, but this is the nation. We are we are the nation of double standard conservationists. You over there in that country far away that have loads of problems to deal with, you have to live with your leopards and your tigers and your lions and your wolves. But we we're not going to tolerate a badger over here. No, no fox, fox, hell no. No, we are we we can't tolerate any animal in Britain. We're supposed to be a, a nation of animal lovers. Which a nation of animal lovers that would condemn every native species to oblivion if like given yeah. half the chance. Yeah, yeah. Like we we say about I'm I'm sorry. There's going to be people that take issue with me over this, but we say enough. Like I say enough about how President Biden he's no saint, but at least he's making some positive moves considering where America have just come from with their last presidency in terms of environmental standards. We're not any that we're not even that much better than them. If if not, we're, yeah, we're, we're worse. possibly worse. We are. Um, like like we dress up in our Sunday best, get on a well groomed horse with a pack of. Uh, of hounds and go out and tear animals to shreds so i'm um, sorry i just take issue with that one small thing it no, doesn't I, in britain right. it doesn't matter if it's an ant or a deer especially with who's in charge right now it, it's all fair game to, to them and and we just sit idly by and do nothing well applaud it in some cases this this is where the sitting idly by bit i can't abide by Thankfully, mm-hmm. this article does have links to um, various different things where you can try and get in contact with your local MP to let them know that this is wrong. And I urge every single person who listens to this podcast in the UK. And you know what? Anyone, because I've, I've looked at our things. We've got people in Thailand. We've got people in the US. We've got people in Canada and Australia and even the UAE. If you live anywhere and uh, want to send an angry letter to any UK MP, I urge you to do so. Please to do. Oh, yeah, do it. Do to, it. To basically let them know what ridiculous standards we are setting for the world. We are supposed to be a country that is civilized and uh, and supposed to be a, a nation of, of animal lovers. But I think, and we're, we're supposed to be leading in conservation because we dictate yes. it so much. <laughs> Sorry, this, this is also the same. Yeah, government. yeah. This is exactly. also the same government. You're right to laugh. That. Um, where, where we had Boris Johnson, the absolute ridiculous hypocrite, say that he was going to lead the nation with green uh, things, get on a plane and fly from London to Cornwall. A oh, that that, oh, that about, mophead couldn't lead a, an army of lemons off of a cliff. It's about a four-hour drive. I certainly don't think that he would have had to drive that distance. It was not a case of poor Boris not being able to drive that distance um, himself. But anyway, that's not the point. There are links on there as to who you can get in mm-hmm. contact with to basically raise a fuss. And I urge every single person. In fact, because we're in North Devon, I, our local MP, Selene Saxby, I highly doubt she listens to our podcast. Um, but if she is or anyone who knows her is, is, is listening, I challenge her to actually get in contact with us and actually give us her reasons why she thinks her government, because she is a member of the, the Conservative government, 
why she thinks this is a good thing. I'm giving her full episode to talk about this. We will sit there and we won't say a thing and allow her to have the entire episode to herself. She's got a week to say something about I'm going to get her on, on our Twitter. I'm going to uh, call her out on our Twitter. Essentially, this, this is an environmental war that we have to try and win Yeah, because reptiles and amphibians are too precious to lose. And Britain yep. has, uh, has precious few of them anyway. And mm. as, uh, as Stephen Elaine said when he came on uh, the podcast, they are in under threat. They are in massively localised areas. And things like this will be the finishing blow that finishes off uh, animals that we won't ever get back. Because yeah. unlike the rest of Europe, and part of the issue with this is our species seem to be counted with the rest of Europe, which is all well and good to count species as part of Europe if they can migrate here naturally. But reptiles, very few, <laughs> very few of them are going to swim the English Channel from France to come here. So um, we need to be counting our reptiles and amphibians as a separate entity to the rest mm-hmm. of Europe. If you wiped out all of the reptiles in Germany, say, eventually, they would come back in from the surrounding countries because there are no physical borders. We are an island, so we need to be looking at our wildlife as somewhat separate from the rest mm-hmm. of Europe and protected as an island. And having, and, and you know what, I'm going to play the Australia card here. <laughs> having lived in Australia, which is yeah. an island, its wildlife is so separated from the rest of the world. There is very much a drive there to protect that wildlife because it is so different and so separated from anywhere else on the planet. Now, our adders are no, not drastically different from an adder from France or from Belgium or from Sweden or anywhere where they're from. But they need to be protected just as much because once they're gone, that's it. And I can't see any future governments wanting to drive to bring back adders. You look at all of the issues that we're having to try and bring back things like beavers, lynx, sea eagles, all of these animals that once lived here that were got rid of. And now people kick up as much fuss as possible to stop them being brought back in. And the amount of time it takes to then reestablish those things, it's game over. Once they're gone, they're gone. That's it. Yep. So I urge Absolutely. every single person listening yeah. to make as much fuss about this as possible. So this basically, it removes the protections from, as Gareth said, with adders. It also does it with grass snakes, common frogs, toads, slow worms, all the, all the sort of more widespread reptiles that we have at the moment. All of which, whilst widespread, are in decline. Yeah, uh, They're just, as Gareth said, just listed as least concern at the moment because in Europe, they're doing relatively okay. Interestingly, they will still be protected in Europe. But <laughs> if those go why. through, they won't be here. And I wonder why that is. Uh, but anyway, the the point is, is that you do not wait for an animal to become so critically endangered that you then panic and go, okay, maybe we need to protect this animal. You yeah. do that before that happens. I've got a number of things to say about this because I'm so furious yeah. about it. I have to apologize for being so heated. But I mean, as Aaron has said on our Amphibian Week episode, when amphibians start to go missing, we should definitely pay attention. We should worry about it. We should also do this for reptiles as well, because they are vital to those ecosystems. They are predators. They are food for things. And also, another thing I, I wanted to add too, when, a long time ago, when, when we used to do, or in my case, did uh, talks with the public at the zoo, we'd of course tell people about these horrible statistics 
And the response would often be, well, what can we possibly do to help? Because the, the statistics are, they are awful. And, and, you know, you get flooded with them and you're sort of, you, you feel sort of worthless mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and hopeless. And Aaron started this trend at, at the zoo and I jumped on that bandwagon at the time. So, I mean, this, this is more props to you, dude. But what you can do, um, what Aaron started saying, and as I started saying, is you can think about this sort of thing. Think about environmental measures when you vote. Yeah, oh, yeah Because yeah. This, this is what happens. I wonder what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You did something good. This is what happens when you put selfish, greedy little bricks in power who have proved time and time again that they'll cut through ancient woodland, they'll concrete over vital wetlands just for a quick buck. This um, is exactly the, what's going to happen now. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the, the JNCC, the organisation that Gareth mentioned, they are supposed to be independent. They also apparently used to be quite well respected and they're not attached to the government. They're independent. They're not attached to them. And that's why this seems extra fishy because mm. it seems that someone, as Gareth said, got some money. And it's, yeah, whilst it's speculation, you could be pretty sure where that money's come from. It's, um, um, it's uh, I, I believe the people, the members that make it up are made up of, of some government. Or so it, so nat- Natural England and, and Nat, nat mm-hmm. Scotland, are yeah. um, they are government agencies, but the JNCC is independent. But yeah, they sort of work together to decide, uh, decide the fates of, you know, all of all of our wildlife, basically. And yeah, they seem to be uh, being being bought out. And just the last thing I want to say too is this starts with reptiles and amphibians. You could be absolutely damn sure if this goes through, it won't stop. Mm. They will come for something else. They'll keep and they'll keep going until they start to get resistance. Mm-hmm. So we need to fight it now before it gets to that stage. Yeah, and uh, uh, we should have attacked the G seven guys. I think. Uh, yeah, or at the very can least. I just point that out? Mm-hmm. At the very you least, we should have kicked Boris nasty. off a cliff. I said I was going to send a dragon there, and you guys laughed at me and called me a terrorist. <laughs> well, I mean, you were. I'm not a terrorist. I'm the. I, I, I'm a. I, I was only. Uh, I was only laughing for my public hearing. Oh yeah, you, oh, yeah. you. I was trying to convince you to bring the ends. Yeah, the ends I, well, I'm happy to kick Boris off a cliff with uh, with cements. Can, yeah. can I just say something? It, it kind of jumps yeah, off of course. what Drew's Drew's already said, but I'm, like Drew alluded to this. I'm going to just out, outright say it. This is the Brexit effect. This is yeah. what happens when you vote based on what you think in your little bubble. And what we need to do nowadays is it, we don't have that luxury. And in fact, to be honest with you, no one in the world has that luxury anymore. We've pushed the world pretty much beyond its brink. And what we need to do now is stop thinking about whether we want to be part of the EU or whether we want to be independent or, or whether we want conservatives because they meet our political needs or whether we want Labour or the Lib Dems or whoever. It's not like we can't vote like that anymore. You can't vote for your family or vote for your community anymore because the world is at this point now where you need to vote for the planet because if you don't vote for the planet in not so long, there won't be a planet for you to vote for your family's well-being. Vote for the environment first and what's best for the planet. Get this under control and then we can go back to living our lives and vote in the way that we want to see benefit ourselves and our families. And it is the Brexit effect because as soon as Drew actually brought this news to our attention and the first thing I did was go 
online and check the EU and their protected, like their conservation uh, efforts and their protections, sorry, for, for different species. All of the species that are now under threat here in, in the UK from this, they're all protected over in the EU. And this is because we believed some nonsense printed on the side of a, of, of a uh, bus. We believed that there was some foreign enemy coming in here and taking our jobs. And we believed all this other nonsense instead of, of, of seeing the EU and our relationship with them for what it was. And immediately the changes are, are palpable. The, the changes are just devastating. And it, now it's attacking the, um, our amphibian and reptile populations. So let me tell you a story. A few years ago, I was kind of doing some activist work in a sense. I was setting up a English branch of Ocean Defenders. Uh, I'm not involved anymore with, with them, but... But at the time, it, it was inspired by the fact that they wanted to, again, conservatives mainly, wanted to dump a massive wind farm. Several, like, I think it started out as 200 and some, I can't remember, 200 and something wind turbines, which was eventually whittled down to just over 100. But they wanted to put it in, in the sea. Now, normally, I wouldn't have a problem with renewable energy. But the reason why I had such a problem with this is because it was going to be put in the one place in british waters where harbour porpoises breed and harbour porpoises are a protected species they've been suffering for a long time and they're very specific about their breeding grounds and the the area i'm talking about is the seven and the the bristol channel and the seven there Mm -hmm. that is their breeding grounds it's the only breeding grounds they have in the uk and they were going to dump these wind farms now the increase in traffic the increase in noise pollution all this would have affected them catastrophically and possibly other other marine life over there. Uh, like I say, usually all for renewable energy, but in, in this case, it was very poorly planned. And if it wasn't for the EU, the British government would have gotten away with it. Uh, and now that there's no EU, now that we're not part of the EU, the British government are like, yes, let's concrete this place. Yeah. So this is all because of Brexit. That's what has allowed them to do this. They they would have they would have been stopped from doing this. No, I very much agree with you, Aaron. It's it's. Uh-huh. Um... Can I just uh, do two two last points? Firstly, this is a personal message from myself, and I hope the guys kind of agree with me. A personal message to our friends and listeners and anyone else in Europe on the mainland. The three of us and and I would say most environmentally conscious people did not vote for Brexit. We wanted to be on your team. Yeah. Please yeah. back us up here. But like, yeah. please, if you can get letters to us, if you can, I don't know if petitioning the EU will do anything now, uh, but if you can somehow make more people aware of this and support us, our, our wildlife didn't vote for Brexit. Like back us up, please. And then, a, uh, and then one last thing, a message to Dan who sent in the question about the mythical creatures you are my witness that these two laughed at me when I said send the dragons to Cornwall last week. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, the what the like say I back up exactly what you uh, just said then, Aaron. Anyone who's listening, tell everyone you know about this. Yes, it's please. going to already be up on our Facebook page because it is that important. A oh, we're we're throwing this everywhere. Issue. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So we we're recording this. On a uh, on a Tuesday evening, this will be up before it, the podcast goes out on the Sunday, so that we can basically get as much impact because this can't wait. This has to be done 
as soon as possible. Normally, I like to uh, put the uh, the news articles up on the Sunday so that everyone can see them when they uh, they listen to the episode. Uh, but this will be going out beforehand. So if you see it on and you're with us on Facebook or on Twitter, share it. Share the absolute living heck out of this to everyone and everyone and make sure they get to their MP and let them know that we need to protect our amphibians because... I have a sex be now. Good, good. Nice. <laughs> Probably don't mention dragons and wiping out the G7 because... You know. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> anyway, we'll now calm down uh, because we're going to uh, to go into our interview room where we've got Phil waiting for us, who we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll ask him his thoughts on this as well because he's a, an amphibian and, and reptile fan as well. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll all calm down. Everyone take a breath, breathe in, breathe out, and we'll... Uh, I'm taking very rapid breaths. <laughs> into that paper bag over there. <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll now go into our interview room. It's time for the interview room. Okay, well, we are now into our interview room, and this is our fourth ever interview, so we're, we're certainly racking up the numbers of, of interviewees. And today we've got the honour of having Phil Barber from Shepreth, who is a zookeeper and a YouTuber as well. So welcome to the cupboard, Phil. Hello, thanks for having me. That's, uh, that's great. So first off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm one of the zookeepers at Shepherd Wildlife Park, if you like, the head of reptiles and invertebrates. And I then help out with the other sections if they need it as well. And then, well, well just coming up to a year, it's so almost a year anniversary, I started a YouTube channel. Hmm. Cool. Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll chat to you about your uh, YouTube channel uh, a little bit more sort of further into the interview. But... On the subject of zookeeping with invertebrates, particularly, how did you get into that? So, yeah, becoming a zookeeper, I kind of pretty much from the age of two wanted to be a zookeeper. So, all my life, um, my mum, when I was around two years old, bought me a, a VHS video of Philip Schofield visits Jersey Zoo. It was basically a bargain bin video at the time, didn't cost hardly anything like 50p or something. But well, that'll keep me entertained while she's doing the cooking. And little did she know that that'll cost uh, a lot of money in the long run of trips <laughs> to Jersey to go to Jersey Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, becoming a member of the Dodo Club. So I'm doing like keeper experiences at Jersey Zoo as well. And then also various trips to any zoo I could go to. Uh, so that pretty much started me off wanting to work with animals. Uh, animals have always been a part of my life. My granddad both my granddads had aviaries of birds so that kind of started off with keeping budgies and stuff and then once I was on I had my own aviary so he kept the you know, the classic mammals as well which was not the right thing of hamsters which are just terrible and stuff and rabbits you know, they're, they're not the best thing for a kid and hamsters they, their bites really hurt yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, but you know he kept all those regular things and then when I was seven years old, that's when I got into reptiles first. My dad grew plants and would sell plants, feed plants all essentially at country shows. And we'd done one where the Eastern Herbological Society had a stand there of reptiles. And I pretty much spent the weekend in there holding everything I could, making a nuisance of myself. 
And then was like, right, I want a snake. I want a reptile. My parents said, no, you're, you're too young. You're only seven. And a lovely guy called Les Fox went, nope, you're the perfect age. And that was it. <laughs> I had to go out and get a reptile then. They were like, well, thank you, Les. So, yeah, later on that year, we went to the Eastern Herbological Society show and came back with leopard gecko and full setup. And they pretty much spiraled on from there. And then the inverts came kind of later on. So it spiraled out where both me and my parents, we both have our private collections. I've got a fair few species of invertebrate in my own private collection. Again, I went to college um, to study animal management. So that cost my parents a lot of money as well. And so often then also doing lots of work experience and volunteering in zoos, including Shepriff, where I work now, and basically made a nuisance of myself until they gave me a job. <laughs> yep. And then just, uh, you know, chipped away being a, a part-time cover keeper until I essentially created my own section and kind of went, you need me full-time now, don't you? <laughs> and, <the> thing, <laughs> and kind of snuck in that way. And they're like, yeah, we do. And uh, yeah, and then now I'm the, the head of a section. Perfect. Awesome. Hmm. What's out of interest, Phil? Because we can see a, a tank in the background there of the video. Uh, obviously, <laughs> it being a podcast, no one else is going to be able to see this but us. But what have you got in the background there? In the background is my tank. Uh, there's nothing actually in it at the moment. I hope there's eggs that are hoping to hatch of lubber grasshoppers. Oh, very oh, nice. Right. Cool, cool. Oh, nice um, things. Yeah, nice big grasshoppers. But yeah, up here, I mean, I've got various tarantulas, giant centipedes, scorpions various species of isopods, sick insects, leaf insects, you, you know, almost you name it, I've got it in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what then transitions is us into uh, Aaron's question for you, which would be about your YouTube channel, where a lot of those, I'm guessing, have starred. Uh, I think Gareth pretty much asked it for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. forget, forget, the, forget that I said it then. But... Uh... <laughs> But yeah, I guess if if I could reword the question, it'd be what what motivated you to take the step uh, onto YouTube and start sharing your knowledge and and that because your videos are, are awesome. To be honest, I really enjoy them. Cheers. Yeah, so it's something that over the years people have been saying I should do. I've always put off. I did, and before watching other people's channels, I kind of had this the mentality of. Oh, YouTube, you know, people on there, they don't know what they're talking about. And, da, 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 da. and it's easy to forget, of course, there's good and bad in everything. Just like yeah. there's good zoos and bad zoos, there's good YouTubers, there's bad YouTubers. Hopefully, I'm a good YouTuber and I aim to be a good YouTuber in terms of my animal husbandry and the knowledge that I put out and the information that I put out. I, you know, I aim for that to be as correct as possible. Mm-hmm. So, one problem sometimes actually with YouTube is that sometimes older videos come up first so if people are looking for sort of specific care husbandry of animals it may actually be out of date that they find and then people start going oh it's completely wrong and so actually no it's just out of date because that video was bought five years ago and that was correct for that time mm. or they you know people often complain like oh they, were, they got that scientific name wrong for that species of trans like, yeah but if you look at the date that was correct for that time <laughs> and so, so as soon as you realize that like yeah you know some people aren't good, but, you know, I think the majority are good, especially on the invert side of things. So it was kind of during lockdown that I really started thinking about it a lot more, you know, because I missed doing the talks that I do as a zookeeper here at the park. You know, and we're still not doing talks yet. We haven't started restarted those yet at all. So I missed sharing that 
my passion for invertebrates and amphoreptiles and any kind of animal. I miss doing that. We started doing a little bit kind of live virtual talks on our social media pages. Yeah. Um, and one of them, I'd, I'd done a, talk, a live talk on tarantulas where I rambled about tarantulas for an hour to people. And not just tarantulas, I included the false widows as well. I went out and caught a, a wild false widow from on site to try and dispel some of the myths around false widows that are, kind of gets battled every year. And that now is like, well, if, if I can do that live via social media to that, maybe I can actually film myself doing kind of animal talks and various other things. So thought, well, you know, why not go ahead and perhaps give it a go? I had, had no idea what I was doing in terms of making a YouTube video, the first, the sort of first ones that I've done, the first ones that I filmed. So I've had a bit of practice on kind of almost doing one kind of for, just for the people of the park. Um, our operations manager actually set up a private uh, Facebook group just for all the staff and volunteers and stuff to share things during lockdown. Mm. So I thought, well, I'll share some videos with those guys and see how it goes, see what they think. They all loved it. And then I commissioned one of our, our cover keepers and volunteers, who's a graphic designer, to do a logo for me. I was like, well, if I pay for a logo, that's going to give me the incentive even more to actually go and do it because then I've actually paid something towards it. Mm. Then took the plans, done the yeah first few videos, and yeah, I, I think in the next few weeks it'll be a year's anniversary of the channel. And just went over 300 subscribers, which is amazing. Uh, well, to me, it's amazing within a year. Um, That's pretty good. So yeah, that point, pretty good. Oh. And yeah, the majority of it is my own invertebrates that I keep. Um, whether that's doing an introduction to the species and it's just a brief introduction to what the species sort of is like. I don't tend to do husbandry stuff just because that can change so much throughout the years and can be especially with invertebrates can be very different depending on where you are in the world where you are in the country and even just whereabouts in the room the tank is just moving it from one side of the room to the other can actually make it completely different of how you keep that animal so i tend to try and avoid doing that a little bit but i will advise people where i can on there um i've done a few unboxing videos um so if i'm getting stuff at new in and then show people like well now i've got this and I've also included some videos, um, which will be more of, of animals at the park, so within the zoo, so things like the aardvarks and the armadillos. Mm-hmm. I've got to admit, that's very much the uh, the same sort of route that we ended up going down for starting this podcast. Is we started it roughly, it, well, in February, I think it was, yeah. because well, I it, certainly in my mind, I was getting that withdrawal of being able to educate people about uh, animals and, and things. Which is certainly what pushed for for starting it. I don't know whether uh, whether you two were were feeling the same push, but no, I was. It was yeah, we were talking about it for a while, weren't we? Yeah, we did talk about this for an awfully long while beforehand. But it's that same sort of feeling. It's that wanting to educate people about the natural world, yeah. which I think yeah. is a good thing. Yeah, that that's all part of it, and trying to inspire the next generation, if you can, as well. And, and that's part of being a zookeeper. Um, or at least for me it is a lot of people always think it's about just working with the animals and stuff which is most of it's that also trying to inspire people to protect the world to protect the animals and to even love yeah the animals and you know especially the ones that i mainly work with and i know gareth you have the same sort of thing is that most of the public don't like what we work with and it's you know trying to try and change their minds if you can yeah 
Well, that pretty much brings me exactly on to the next question. question Gareth which is... never mentioned that being a problem <laughs> for him, ever. <laughs> no, no. It's easy for you, Aaron. You work with big, charismatic carnivores. Everyone <laughs> loves them, even if they sit there and do absolutely nothing. I did hear something outside my lion enclosure today that broke my heart. So they're by the lions, and they were enjoying themselves, and they were about to go up and see the, uh, the grey wolves. And a kid came over to me super excited because he found one of those little red mites. Perfect. He was super excited. And I, I tried to encourage him. I said, oh, that's, that's one of these mites. And I tried to explain a bit about it. Not, not as well as you could, Gareth, but I, I did try. And his mum came over and said, don't be silly. There's far more exciting animals here to, to look at than that. I just my joy at the floor. I was shocked. Broke well, that, that pretty much is the setup for the... Um for the next question uh, that we have for you, Phil, which is uh, as someone who who basically spends their day working with invertebrates and educating people in public talks and on YouTube about them, you've got that massive disparity. You can have someone, you know, have a lion sit there and do absolutely nothing and people will spend hours sitting there in front of it. You can have the most amazing endangered invertebrate sitting there and people will walk straight past it or instantly dismiss it as horrible. Do you have a way of trying to engage the public with these sort of animals and any, any sort of tricks that you use to try and try and get a hook into them, you know, try and make them want to care? Yeah, so the, there's a few different ways. I think main way is just being passionate about it and speaking with passion about it, um, about the subject matter, about the animals. If you can show them up close, you know, and get them almost in the same airspace, I like, can't really do it at the moment. So that's where like the YouTube really comes in. And even at the part, we've even done... Um, QR code talk so people can just get, scan a QR code and get a little talk if they want to. But mainly, yeah, speaking with passion about the animal, choosing just maybe a couple of things about whether it's a cockroach or a stick insect or a beetle or whatever, and just try and, you know, just those couple of little sort of snippets about something like, you know, the fact beetles, you know, over 450,000 species, that blows people's minds as it should. Mm. So, you know, cockroaches is one of my favourite things to talk about because most people hate cockroaches. I absolutely adore cockroaches. So I love speaking to people about those and seeing, you know, can I change just, you know, one person's opinion on them by actually saying how clean they can be, maybe how we kind of rely on them for, for survival, for planet survival. Mm. Um, and even again, then perhaps to think of their favourite animal in the world and they go, well, without an invertebrate, that animal's dead. Mm. So that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, invertebrates <laughs> run the world. We cannot survive without invertebrates. We need them in our daily lives. And even the ones that we don't like, that are annoying, we really, really need those. Flies, really, really important things. You can get an animal by just by talking to, to Erica, the uh, Natural History Museum in London. Wow. Her, and you're going to love flies. Yeah. <laughs> She's the yeah. best person to speak to about flies. I mean, I'd love to have on on the podcast at some point in the future. She's just absolutely amazing, just her passion for flying. And that's the thing, you know, having that passion for stuff and can just rub off on people a little bit more. Mm. And try and get them, you know, to hopefully go away and do their own sort of research. I like to highlight in my talks or when we do like the keeper experiences or junior keeper experiences, is to highlight endangered invertebrates. You know, because obviously we always hope that people realise that zoos are here for conservation purposes. If you realise that we, you know, we want to conserve tigers, lions, um, red pandas, all these sorts of nice charismatic animals that everyone loves. You know, when they come here, they love seeing the tigers, they love seeing the red pandas. 
But you know, go look at this little little Enid snail. These are endangered, and these are just as endangered as some of these, if not more endangered. Mm-hmm. And then even relaying that into native invertebrates as well. That we've got endangered native invertebrates here in the UK, and encourage them to conserve and protect your invertebrates in your garden and things that you can do to protect invertebrates in their back garden. And it's getting the kids, get the kids involved. And often they'll then encourage their parents to get involved. So again, without the current situation, we do things like National Insect Week, which is just uh, well, just started today. Mm. Um, well, it's this week going on. Normally I do kind of bug displays with my own ones in, so what more bugs than ever before kind of thing on display. And so, um, but I try and get them involved with everything that I've done an Asian bug display for Tiger Day once so I was like right let's celebrate bugs along with tigers and go well without these we can't have tigers and stuff um, which is absolutely amazing dude and that um, our directors like me to do and all sorts of things yeah just like that and just yeah really getting the passion across um, getting the kids involved get, doing bug hunts and so and kids absolutely love finding wood lice yeah that's just that's great mm-hmm. when they come back to you they found a wood louse and they're just enamored with this woodlouse, and that, that's great. And mm. then, you know, perhaps around like a tropical woodlouse as well. And look, look at the, you know, look at the variety, and they're like, oh my god, there's so much variety in these. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Sorry about the uh, cuckoo clock. Every Monday happens. Yeah, he, he jumps in on every podcast, <laughs> and I can't get rid of it because we don't do the audio separately. <laughs> <laughs> We'll go on to uh, uh, Drew your your next question you've got. Yeah, uh, that's a fantastic answer, and it is genuinely really satisfying when you can convey really passionately um, across some misconceptions to people, and they and you see it in their face that they're actually starting to you're starting to win them around on an animal that previously they didn't like at all. Yeah, it's it's a really really nice feeling, uh, and yeah, good for the mean, animals yeah, as well. Yeah, so often people come with these preconceptions of of just animals in general. Yeah. Sometimes it's just trying to change that, and some of it, you know, even without doing talks or anything, sometimes it's just in enclosure design. So, if you make a cockroach enclosure really pretty with flowers mm. and all that, whatever, it looks pretty, therefore, mm. the animal might be pretty. Yeah, so even that can, can really help. And that's you know, a fairly new way of thinking over the past few years of thinking how we name our buildings, and that you know, historically. So many zoos would call their their bug buildings like the creepy crawly house or anything, which has negative connotations about it. If you call mm. it creepy, ours is called hidden treasures. So, oh, I so, like that. You know, yeah. And when we we sort of rebuilt and re- renamed, I was like, I want something that could mean anything, and but nothing kind of you know real negative about that. And I was like, well, they're hidden, they're treasures, and it actually went to an, a, a sort of naming competition for the public to pick the name. I'll pick a few names and I'd pick the one that I liked that or that, and that that was the one. And that person then got sort of family ticket uh, nice to start when we opened the building, and so I was like, "That's absolutely perfect for what I want." And so, where you you see that name, like, well, it could be anything in there, and so and then you know already you know well hidden, so you've got to look for them. <laughs> sort of yep. And then treasures, you know, so many things like you know, so many beetles are so brightly coloured mm. that mm-hmm. they are like mini treasures. And so, and then, yeah, if you make a, a really beautiful display with live flowers in there and stuff, again, you know, that just amplifies that where it's not, you know, all creepy looking. It's sort of, oh, this is actually really pretty looking. Mm. Yeah. Can I just yeah. ask a quick jumping off question there? 
since the renaming, have you noticed that people spend longer looking at those enclosures? So, yeah, in this room we have, yeah, if you've got a real nice complex looking enclosure, yeah, more often people will spend a bit longer looking. Some people don't, and there's some people that you'll never change their mind, hmm. and they'll just walk straight through and won't even bother to look. And, as, you know, that, that's always a shame. And, I mean, it's part of the thing, again, just as any kind of zebra is trying to create an enclosure that people will spend longer looking at. Like, often the average is around three seconds spent looking at an enclosure. That's not a long time at all. And so, so you can get them spending 30 seconds. That's an achievement. But if you can get them spending maybe, you know, half an hour in the building, which has happened, looking at each enclosure and, you know, and even going back to the forwards to see see things, that's absolutely amazing. You know, and when you get people, sometimes I've gone in there and there's literally people just sort of sat down watching things and stuff that's in the cool game. That's, that, that's brilliant. You know, if they're standing, looking at the leaf cut rants, going about their business, well, just things like that where like and they're just absolutely enamored by them i think leaf cutter ants are one of those few exceptions of of invertebrates that people will sit and watch for hours i think it's yeah. something about leaf cutter ants that people just get absolutely fixated on watching because they're always always they're always doing something yeah yeah i think it's that constant movement there's you know hundreds of them moving in different directions you can follow one for ages but you show someone a well, stick insects are usually probably the ones that get the least. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. If they're if they're someone that's always moving, they're going to be you know absolutely fascinated by them. Uh, the problem is things like yeah, stick insects, tarantulas, scorpions, and stuff, which are amazing to me, absolutely fantastic looking things, um, and I'm fascinated by them. But often are sat still doing nothing. Mm. You know, <laughs> is that people go, oh well, there it is, and then move on. Or you know, in the case of some some of them like scorpions tend to be buried most of the time and they can't see them they'll spend a bit of time looking for them and then they get bored <laughs> yeah. and the same yeah with like seeking sex and stuff so again you know with the trousers and the scorpions again trying to make that a nice looking enclosure a pretty looking enclosure and even sometimes a gimmicky enclosure so over christmas time i'll put in little christmas toys in there and people go oh well, look at that well that's cute he's got a little santa <laughs> and stuff <laughs> And like that's something else, and then they got to look for that. And obviously, over Hall- Halloween, kind of does lend itself, unfortunately, a bit to to invert. Right? So I'm very much a Halloween person, anyway. So I do go around putting skulls in things and all that. The other, which people absolutely love that as well. That I decorate the tanks up for Halloween. I've seen. But I also do the same for Christmas, you know. And then things like leaf rants, you know, giving them cake decoration, love hearts for Valentine's Day, and they got to then carry the love hearts back. People love things like that as well. <laughs> I've oh. seen your, uh, your your Halloween displays. You always always end up sharing them on Facebook, and that. <laughs> I love the blood splatters you always do on the windows. The sort of fake stick on blood splatters. Oh, perfect. Yeah, they they love me doing things like because they know I get really into it. I use all my own decorations. And I love doing. It. I have all these animatronic statues and stuff. You know, to jump out at people and and things, and yeah, try and decorate all the tanks up and stuff. And it's just all right. It's a bit of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's a very simple question, next one, but it might have a not-so-simple answer. What do you reckon is your favourite invert? Well, there's not many to choose from, of course. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a, that is such a difficult one because I'm such a generalist when it comes to invertebrates. Um, oh, I, that I tend to love all invertebrates. Um, but some people are very much, they love tarantulas and that's all they want to keep. Stuff and some people are very much. I'm just sticking text where I love them all. 
So it's really, really difficult to choose. Yeah, the absolute sort of favourite. I suppose Scorpions are up there for me as one of my absolute favourites. Yeah, I, I don't think I could go without Scorpions. <laughs> so, uh, absolutely adore Scorpions. Amazing animals. A lot of people think, you know, well, they all look kind of similar, but to me, they really don't. They do look different. Even sort of the big, all the big black ones to me all look very different to each other. So the, the heterometrics, the, the Asian forest scorpions, there's so many species of Asian forest scorpion, and a lot of people think, oh, they all look the same. And I'm like, oh, no, no, look, this is all, this is different, this is different. And then you've got things like the desert scorpions, which are much lighter in colour as well. And just some of the smaller ones, some of the sort of striped devil scorpions and stuff, which are tiny, but such attitude on them. And it's amazing just how much attitude they've got. As I was, I've got one um, I fed the other day, and it pretty much jumped at the cricket. <laughs> and stuff, and then was just running around with this cricket, and, stuff, and it was like it was so happy that it got this cricket, <laughs> and, stuff, and, was, and then you know it's got more attitude. It's my smallest scorpion, and it's got more attitude than my biggest scorpion. I suppose it's a bit <laughs> like um, that sort of small dog, big dog sort of uh, sort of thing, where you've got you know a Chihuahua's got one hell of a more of an attitude than say a German yeah. Shepherd a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, it it really is like that. My biggest one, which is my some of giant. Um, Asian forest, which I have up here, um, Heterometrus longamanus. I'll go and check it and it cowers away. And it's like, no, 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 leave me alone, leave me alone, sort of thing. This one, Paraphodophus, which is tiny, it's only like a couple of centimeters long and it comes at you. <laughs> it's like, no, no. <laughs> like it. <laughs> it's got such a, but it's brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, so back in May, so I know you don't work with the tigers so much. Um, so sorry to divert away from inverts but as a personal interest of mine ratna the uh 17 year old sumatran tiger um she had a cataract surgery how is she doing because uh, we did hear that it was a success so what she had so she had a cataract surgery a few years ago actually at chesington where where she came to us from mm. um so when her and her daughter came to us um ratna and kelavu she had already had the cataract surgery there but because of part of that, she still had a cloudy eye. Mm. Um, so I had to have like, sort of daily eye drops and stuff, which I'm trying to help with. But earlier this year, um, I think it was around February time that happened, um, her actual keepers, her main keepers, noticed that that eye was more discoloured and to be more uncomfortable for her. Mm. So obviously contacted our, our main zoo vet. He had a look. And kind of agreed. So he then contacted an eye specialist, um, which for us, luckily, is uh, David Williams, who's actually just down the road in Cambridge. Anyway, and is part of Cambridge University uh, Vet School to see if he could come out and have a look. So he came out, had a look, and was like, okay. And what he said he think was, was that perhaps kind of just dubbed her eye on like a, a bit of bamboo cane or something. So their enclosures full of bamboo and various other plants and stuff. So potentially just managed to stub her eye on, on suffered just mm. by being clumsy. And that had caused a bit of an infection. And so he basically arranged to come out. It was either the next day or the day after, very quickly, to do surgery on the eye. And from my understanding, what he actually done, he got the uh, conjunctiva, so the pink part of the eye, mm. and essentially sewed that over her eyeball to protect the eye, for essentially to allow the time to heal and... It's been done in domestic cats, but mm-hmm. as far as he was aware, never been done with a big cat. 
ever. Wow. It's really impressive, yeah. And, I mean, you guys will know with an older cat, yeah, 17, 18-year-old cat, pulling her under anesthetic is always a risky business. Yeah. But she even ha- has a history of problems with anesthetic, so again, even more risk there. The surgery was all done on site in one of the uh, one of the houses, and I think it took like half an hour. <laughs> so I mean, it didn't take long at all. They yeah go around and then he basically visited her and then pretty much um, once a week just to have a look at the eye, see how that was getting on, make sure that that was sort of doing okay. Because only once he'd done that, it kind of to us looked a lot worse <laughs> because something was bright red. Um, the eye. But that was all kind of part of it. And yeah, he then a few weeks ago gave her basically a clean bill of health, essentially, when it's all healed up. She won't necessarily see out of that eye very much, um, if at all. I don't think she can see out of that eye perhaps at all now, I don't think. But the eye will be saved, mm. essentially. So there's no need to like remove the eye or anything. It's all healed. It's all good. He's really happy with, with her progress with it. To the center, we don't have to give her eye drops anymore. That's um, fantastic. Yeah, it was like, don't bother with those. There's no need. As I've which is fantastic. There's also made as well. Another thing we had is got platforms in there as you do for for big cats to, to climb platforms. She would get up okay, but sometimes we'd almost struggle coming down. As I've, and she's a lot more better at that. So you know, potentially she could perhaps see a bit, and there was perhaps blur in her vision or something, and just. Doing this with the eyes helped her see that bit better. Although she probably can't see out of that eye, it's perhaps less confusing for her herself mm. now. Well, as well. But um, yeah, she, she she is an amazing cat. Yeah, the, I help her with the odd bit with with their training. So when we were having them, we had a medical cage sort of built because the guys at Chesham had trained her to come in and take eye drops. So we, we have that sort of facility for her. But yeah, she's almost far too happy to go in there. <laughs> sort of thing um, but yeah there's no need for that anymore but it's still great because we've got that gauge for anything in the future where we I know they guys train uh, for um, for blood draws stuff that you can do completely conscious uh-huh. and stuff and uh, various other things and now trying to get her, her daughter to be more comfortable with it as well that sounds brilliant you've given a, uh, an old tiger its quality of, of life back and hopefully it'll going on for a lot longer so along with your invertebrates then uh, phil you're also into your reptiles what we've talked about in our news articles earlier in this episode is how it looks like there are going to be reductions in protection for native species of reptile and amphibian in the uk that could essentially end any of the protections for things like adders common lizards basically anything that's not a great crested newt smooth snake uh, or a a pool frog, which sand lizard possibly as well. Oh, and a sand lizard, I think. Basically, any endangered species. But mm. there's an awful lot of our our native reptiles and, and amphibians, even though they're not classed as endangered, probably should be. And these sort of protections are going to lead to some devastating consequences. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that, as as a fellow reptile uh, enthusiast? Yeah, definitely. As a yeah, as a reptile lover as well, that it really is concerning that something like this could happen. Because along with inverts, a lot of reptiles are very misunderstood and again are kind of maligned um, and even hated sometimes. You know, especially snakes, mm. and especially uh-huh. adders. You know, you do see all these sort of sensationalist news stories every so often. 
um, about adders and stuff, which really doesn't help. And even people, um, I've, well, I've heard of people where they've put like posters up about adders and going like, oh, we need to get rid of these adders to save our dogs and stuff. I was like, well, the adder was there first. Yeah. Like, That's the adder's habitat. You're in the adder's habitat. How about keep your dog on a lead or don't walk your dog there? Um, so I do think, yeah, if we remove those protections that, yeah, very soon, it wouldn't take long before they're endangered, critically endangered or even potentially extinct within the UK, which would be a real shame if these animals were, were to go. Especially when, again, they were here first. So at the end of the day, that it's their habitat. They definitely should be protected. And as I said, some of them probably should be classed as endangered. Um, but I only not classed that because they're actually more common on the main, mainland Europe. Um, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. yeah, And they are in the UK, but certainly they're, they're declining in the UK. We know they're declining still, so they definitely need to keep the protection, in my opinion. Mm. What's the reptile and uh, amphibian populations like around where, where your uh, part of the world is? Because uh, it seems to vary very much from county to county. It, it certainly does vary. Um in my particular part, do you see grass snakes um, occasionally, um, even within the park, but very, very occasionally, and people ring up, you know, oh, I've seen a snake and often it's a grass snake. See a hoot and well, I don't get out as often as I would like to go searching or, you know, to go kind of having a look around heathlands and various other areas to see uh, what's about. Mm. I've um, haven't been able to do even for some of the invertebrates either that I would like to get back out doing. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things that um, yeah, it's you've just got to be in the right place at the right time to even just be able to see some of these things, and then yeah. the the right areas to, are vastly disappearing. Yeah, if we lose these protections, then those areas are probably going to quickly disappear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's been uh, a fantastic interview with uh, with you there, Phil. Um, some really good stuff as well. It's it's good to to also talk to another invert fan especially because um I, I always feel outnumbered by you know everyone else who's a big mammal person and bird person same here same here <laughs> yeah they always look at you in a funny way when you speak in scientific names i know they always think you, yeah it's like <laughs> it's a whole other language that, that only invertebrate and reptile people blank stares. <laughs> yeah i mean it i mean it is a whole other language Oh yeah. Anyway, that's not that's, that's not the point. But what we're going to do, um, if you want to hang around, we're going to do our emails next, and you can uh, you can jump in and help with the, some of the questions that we've got sent in this week. So let's yeah, do that. Bing, you've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Okay, well, we're now into our mailbag for this week. Um, we've got three emails that have uh, have come in. And the first one is a was a paleo question, and it comes to us from uh, Dan Lois Louis. Oh, I'm gonna oh, just butchered his name, Dan Lois Louis. <laughs> Dan Luisietti. I think it's Luisietti. Luisietti. Right there we go. I apologise, Dan. I should ask him actually to be honest. Just say, <laughs> just say our good friend Dan. Yes, our good friend, friend Dan. Podcast Dan. Anyway, <laughs> hey Dan. He has asked. Uh, I've just heard of a deodon. They look mad scary. Did they He's not wrong. And uh, what's the best way to defend yourself against the modern-day warthog? Well, there's two things. He's definitely not wrong. Um, no. To give some context, and I think this is an animal we should certainly do a creature feature on at some point. I'd love to. Deodon is what's known as a member of the um, or the 
given the sort of colloquial name of hell pigs or uh, terminator pigs that this is wrong for a, a couple of reasons one they're not made by cyberdyne systems uh, and two uh, they're not also pigs um the intelligence uh, which is a group of what are known as artiodactyls which is the even toed ungulates i can never remember if it's the even toed or odd toed it's even toed yeah even toed so basically the group that these guys are in actually includes hippos and whales they're in uh, their own little sort of subgroup they look like pigs but they're not pigs they lived during the uh, late to mid eocene period so it's about 50 million years ago right the way through to uh, the Oligocene period, about 30 million years ago, right across North America, Europe, and Asia. Some of them got pretty big, but as to what they eat, they had extra enamel coating on their teeth, and there was thoughts that these guys were just purely meat-eating, bone-crushing monsters. Um, But then there's also been thoughts that they must have been plant-eaters. But their teeth, like most mammals, have got bits of both. They've got teeth that are good for grinding, teeth that are good for crushing, teeth that are good for slicing. So it's probably thought that they're actually, they'll eat whatever the heck they can. And if you're the biggest creature around at that point, you can pretty much eat whatever you want. So, um, yeah. And as for defending against a modern day warthog, I think we all agreed on this because we all talked a bit beforehand. (laughs) The best way is um, don't go getting close to a wild warthog in in the wilds of of Africa. Don't, you know, don't go annoying them because generally I don't think they'd uh, want to attack you unless you uh, provoke them. Yeah, they're they're not particularly aggressive. I think particularly for pigs, actually, because some pigs, it it comes at you, you you need to get away. Don't call them pigs, though. You have to refer to them as Mr. Pig. Oh, well, there we go. That's that's the first problem. I think more people are actually killed by domestic pigs than certainly warthogs. Um, Yeah, well, they can be be nasty. uh, The trick is to always have a buddy that's slower than you. Yeah. (laughs) Or... Feeding climb people. A tree. Pigs can't climb. That is true. <laughs> they are quite. They are quite smart though, so they could just wait. But could the Deodon one thousand climb trees? Technically, because the Deodon one thousand is made of mimetic polyalloy, and so they surely never, he can they never turn into something that, that far, could climb. No, they, they they became extinct just before the uh, the Deodon one one thousand. Such a shame. So they yeah, were stuck in the Deodon one hundred one. So yeah, we'll go from that uh, paleo email to our next email, which I think Drew's got. Yep. Uh, so it's one from Jess again. I don't know who this is. To keep messaging in. Uh, so do she asked? Do invertebrates pick up parasites like other species of invertebrate, uh, like many vertebrates do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm probably answer that one. So yes, they do pick up various parasites. So if you just do a quick search on on a search engine for prey mantis worms, you'll see horrific pictures and videos of prey mantis with these huge horsehair worms coming out of their abdomens. It's horrific to, to watch the worms are pretty much the size of the mantis, if not sometimes a bit bigger than the mantis, and that's curled up inside its abdomen. You also get a lot of species that will get mites, um, but sometimes those mites are actually symbiotic, so actually help out the uh, the host. So mm. things like hissing cockroaches, they often have some mites on them that help keep them clean. Um, and a lot of millipedes do as well. So sometimes there might be a parasite, but they can actually be beneficial. And, but then also there's mites that are not beneficial. So sometimes you've got to know the difference between the two and know whether that invertebrate should have some parasites on it or not. So 
things like tarantulas and centipedes, if they've got mites, they probably shouldn't be there. Um, in which case, then we might want to look at sort of a treatment for them, which is often actually a, another species of mite, which is a carnivorous mite that eats other mites and eats, sort of eats their eggs and stuff. Nice. But yeah, for a simple answer, yes, a lot of invertebrates can get other invertebrate parasites. Hmm. One that I think people should look up as well is the zombie disco snail. There's a fantastic yes. video of those parasites yeah. on, on the internet. I remember seeing that for the first time on the Natural documentary many years ago when I was a, when I was a child. And um, yeah, they get that this worm that just pulsates in its, in its eye stalk, essentially, and takes over its brain and makes it come out during the day and now into the open to be picked up by a bird. And then that bit gets seen and then the parasite gets into its bird host. Nature's wonderful. <laughs> nature's beautiful. It's beautiful. Who's you science fiction when you got nature? Yeah. yeah, what a wonderful world! <laughs> and I think our our third and final uh, email we've got, Aaron, you've got this one, which is uh, is also from Jess, I believe. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is from Jess a second. And um, are we sure we're not in pop culture corner because we've had Terminators, Aliens, and now we've got Jaws? Uh, <laughs> so Jess a second writes in with what is the most endangered species of shark in the UK and how can we protect it so unfortunately you've asked us a question about my one of my favorite families in one of my favorite biomes so prepare for a long ass answer so the UK is blessed with many elasmobranch species but as you asked specifically about sharks I will refrain from going too overboard um, so I thought I'd go off Go off your question, go one better than just give you the most endangered species of shark. So here's a list of every species, the IUCN conservation status of each of them in our waters. So it starts off, the following four sharks are listed by the IUCN red list. You've got the small spotted cat shark. It's the least endangered of our sharks because they're least concerned and they can be found here throughout the year. Uh, the blue shark, which you can find from June to August. Um, that one's near threatened. Nurse hounds are also near threatened. But you can see them throughout the year. And fresher sharks you can see throughout the summer and uh, they're vulnerable. So the next few species I've got listed for you are not just listed by the IUCN red list, but they're also listed as a priority species under the UK post 2010 biodiversity framework. And that is the You've got the spur dog sharks. They can be found all year round. They're vulnerable. Poor beagles, usually sighted between June and October. They're also vulnerable. And then, of course, you've got taupe sharks, which can be found all year round. Uh, and you'll not just find them on, in, in the coastal saline waters, but you can also find them in brackish waters of tidal estuaries. Uh, in fact, the estuaries where the tor and the torridge meet, have, we've seen a couple of taupe sharks in there. And they can be found quite far upstream, actually, in these areas. Uh, they're also vulnerable, in case I didn't mention that. So finally, the following species is our most endangered shark species in the UK. And that is, of course, the majestic Baskin shark. Uh, it's an awesome animal. And you can uh -huh. spot these most of the time between May and September. This species is listed as endangered on the IUCN red list. And like the previous few species, it's also listed as a priority species under the UK post-2010 biodiversity framework. 
Uh, it is also protected. Now, considering what we spoke about during the news articles, take this for what it might be worth and might not be worth these days, but it says it's protected in the UK under the Wildlife and Countryside Act. We'll see um, just how long that act stays in place. Yeah, exactly. It's actually named in that bloody mess. Uh, anyway, I do actually have one final shark that I want to give an honourable mention to, and that is great white sharks. Uh, so you can cue your whispers of uh, conspiracy and barely veiled sniggers of disbelief, but they're never found on among the lists of species native to the UK, because they aren't, but they're neither listed as a migratory species that visits their water, our waters, which they almost certainly are. Seafaring folk from fishermen and surfers and more have reported sightings going back decades, but only twice has this species been scientifically documented to approach our waters, and neither of these individuals were particularly close to the coastline at the time of recording. The most recent scientific documentation, just to panic all the grockles that might be turning up in Devon and Cornwall soon, uh, <laughs> it was in April this year, a GPS-tagged 50-year-old female, around 70 foot in size. Now, that's a big that's a big shark, and she's got 50 years of, of hunting, so, yeah, you run with that fear. Um, <laughs> not that I'm encouraging fear of sharks. I love sharks. They're fantastic animals, uh, and Jaws has done a hell of a lot of damage. Anyway... Yeah. However, a series of heat waves between 2014 and 2016, in addition to the constant rising in, in uh, sea temperatures, has actually seen this species expand their territories in, in the northern waters by a further 370 miles at least. So with all this in mind, I will most certainly include this uh, magnificent animal on our list. And uh, they, the great white sharks are considered vulnerable. So to move on to the second part of your question, how can we help protect? basking sharks are most endangered species of sharks so my first bit of advice is to get yourself onto sharktrust.org there are other places for you to visit for the information but if you start here uh, you'll be on to a winning information mining exercise it's a really good little little site there so here you'll find a sizable variety of shark inspired documents to meet your educational needs you'll find games for your kids and kids that you might work with um, you'll find their five recommended ways of uh, helping protect basking sharks too, which are as follows. So they've actually composed a code of conduct relating to how we should behave in basking shark territories and, and when we come across the animals. Uh, so if you follow that yourself and promote it to others, that is a big step in the right direction. If you see a basking shark, record it. Now you can record it online through sharktrust.org photos will help them a great deal and any additional information about the individual you see is great too so any scarring or anything like that any any the most minute detail is is helpful to to them you can adopt a basking shark and no that doesn't mean you get to take it home it means you sponsor it and you raise funds to help conserve them actively along the same path you can make donations sharktrust.org is just one place where you can do this and finally, in that five steps to protecting basking sharks, uh, they advise that you choose WISE, which is a, the wildlife safe scheme. So if you want to go and see one of these magnificent marine marvels in the wild, choose a tour operator that is uh, a WISE tour operator. Uh, this scheme has its own website and it is linked on sharktrust.org. So like I say, sharktrust.org is a great place to go to start 
and then you can kind of spider web your way out from there. In addition to these five steps, keep your eyes peeled for injured basking sharks or individuals harassing them. Yes, this type of absolutely soulless moron does exist. So if you witness these, report it to the National Wildlife Crime Unit immediately. There are also channels you can find through sharktrust.org for reporting findings of stranded or dead sharks. So I hope that's answered your question and fully, if not more so. I think that's pretty much thoroughly answered the uh, the question there. And it's um, they're a fantastic. Well, they're a fantastic group of animals to, to see. And I, I got to admit, I'm one of those people as well who thinks that there's a possibility that there's great whites hanging around in our waters. Yeah. Not that people should fear them either. I think, you know, if, if we're lucky enough to have those hanging around uh, off the coast of the UK, that'd be an amazing animal to see there. When I was Absolutely. a kid, my dad was teaching me how to surf. They had a bodyboard at the time, actually. And the beach was closed off and they set up a massive, uh, like a projector and they had cameras in the water because they said there were great whites at, at the beach. And that was in the southwest. Oh. But yeah, if you don't want your ear talked off, don't make the mistake of sending a marine-based question, particularly not a shark <laughs> or cetacean one, uh, into the podcast, because I will just go, I will ramble and ramble and ramble and ramble and ramble. Yeah, speaking of which, the old basking shark may feature in a creature feature relatively soon. Indeed. Mm. So... Yeah. Keep your eyes out. There are actually it two sharks out. on that. <laughs> two sharks in what we've just spoken about that are in planned creature features. Mm. If not more. I think we could get some more shark ones in there. Yeah, sharks are great. Yeah. I'd love to. Those are uh, some fantastic questions we've had there and some fantastic answers as well, which actually brings us to the end of this week's episode as well. Oh. Um, I know. <laughs> so before we go, Phil, do you want to tell us where everyone can find you as well, especially your YouTube channel and various other antics? Yeah, so my YouTube channel is Incredible Inverts and Other Animals, and that's also a Facebook page as well, although I'm a, I am rubbish at updating Facebook page. And then I'm also on Instagram as just Bugs Phil, because I've done Instagram beforehand, but again, I'm sometimes rubbish at posting up on there as well. But on the YouTube, so far, it's every single Sunday, um, it comes up because of around nine o'clock. There should be a new video every Sunday. And, um, and also, actually, most Sunday evenings, I'm part of a live stream as well with some other YouTubers uh, called the Adventurous Keepers Adorable Creatures, which mm. goes through a few a few different channels. Um, I'm taking a bit, well, they're taking a break at a moment uh, for this week, but I hope to be back, hopefully, on when this comes out itself, actually. Hopefully, mm. you can catch that in the evening as well. As other, and there's a live chat that goes on in there and stuff, and uh, it's just a nice social gathering of various people from across the UK and also America as well. Hmm. And then, of course, you can come and find me at Shepherd Wildlife Park. Come and visit the zoo. Of yeah, course, yeah, everyone, everyone go and find him, especially in, well, if uh, when talks and that get back to normal as yeah, well for, for UK zoos. Um, Keep safe, so yeah. everyone. Yes, indeed. Well, everyone go and, and check out his YouTube channel and. Push the subscribers up. You you said you're at three hundred. Just got over three hundred people going there. Like when I checked earlier today, I was at three hundred and eight. Oh, let's let's see nice. if we can push that number up with uh, with our massive audience of yeah. the millions, um, yeah, millions, millions. Yeah. So yeah, go and check out Phil's stuff. And like I say, if you if you're able to go and see him at Shepreth, certainly 
yeah, go go and uh, listen to some of his talks as well. Right. Um, so a big thank you, of course, for you joining us, Phil. It has been fantastic. Thanks for uh, having me. Thanks for the invite. That's Thanks, all right. Thank you very much. Always welcome to come oh. on and be a guest. So that just leads me to say a big thank you to everyone this week. So a big thank you to you, Drew. Uh, you're welcome. And a big thank you to you, Aaron. So long, cupboard dwellers. Good, good. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, if you like what you heard and uh, want to get in contact with us, we're on email at thenathistorycupboard at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter and on Facebook, The Natural History Cupboards Podcast. You can find us that way or our Twitter handle uh, as well for the Facebook thing is at NH Cupboard. And uh, we've always got stuff going up on uh, Twitter and on Facebook. I've been thoroughly enjoying posting all these pictures for the uh, the 30 Days Wild thing. It's been um, been mm-hmm. fun posting up some of those. And I'd like to point out that that orchid photo was the first time I'd ever seen a native orchid. So uh, it's some firsts for me in there as well. Compared to Broughton Burrows, there's, I mean, you'll, you'll get sick of them eventually. I know, but I'd never seen them before. <laughs> that was, anyway, that's not the point. We'll, we'll leave that. <laughs> so if you like what you heard, remember that you can like subscribe and and leave us a review and all that good stuff so um let's say a big thank you to you guys for being here and a big thank you as well phil for coming on uh but a big thank you to you guys for listening uh at home and we'll hopefully see you next time here in the natural history cupboard so uh bye bye for now tiada lagi mutan oh god (laughs) wow (laughs) cool (laughs) What language oh. was that then? That was Malaysian. Good. All those hours spent learning Malaysian just to be able to say that. <laughs>